Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast still refusing to put the heating on. My name is Corey Hazelhurst and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey Corey. And we are joined once again by all-round splendid egg, Shaz Rahman. Hello Shaz. Hello. We're going to abuse the fact that Shaz is here with his expertise in the energy market to talk about energy, energy bills, energy costs, energy price caps, anything energy related really, try and work out whether we need to start I don't know, putting in a wood burner or something to stop, make sure we don't have blackouts in January. Right, let's get on with it. Why exactly is energy costing so much at the moment? Okay, so you have to go back quite a bit. So when the pandemic happened, demand shrunk massively. Whilst industry was kind of going on, the domestic use for individuals went down massively. Now, as we moved out of COVID lockdowns and societies opened up again, demand skyrocketed and there are scarce resources, fossil fuels and renewables. And basically... What happened was the world wasn't prepared. There was no, no, what you know, if you had planned it out, you'd have a phased return to life in terms of energy supply, but we didn't. And so, for example, demand for refrigeration in East Asia massively skyrocketed and has a knock on effect as to who can get those limited resources. In this country, we didn't have gas storage. We used to have lots of gas storage, but it was phased out because it was kind of seen as unnecessary by conservative governments. And what? Where would you store gas? In massive tankers. Right. Like we own um, there was there's like one in Aston. There's like oh, there's right. those the massive yeah. not not quite tubes, but they're like absolutely so massive. The thing that in Sheffield they knock them down. Yeah, they? yeah, yeah. Oh, so so fine. a lot of them are just kind of there as historical relics. I can't remember the exact name, but there were loads of them about where you just you just store gas on a massive scale and we just didn't find it think it was necessary and what what has happened is as demand has skyrocketed we've just not been able to keep up and things like the war in ukraine exacerbated it because one of the stable partners that europe had that you know could knock out oil for fun has decided that it doesn't really want to do that anymore because of geopolitical reasons and so you've got a lot of factors where three years ago we assumed gas supply was rock solid and gas was quite cheap and now we have a scenario where if unless you're America with your own supplies or you're self-sufficient you're relying on somebody else and you're importing it and you're importing on the wholesale gas market which is now if you look at the the, the graphs from 20 to 2021 to now the, the massive spike in 2021 was at levels that had never existed before and well whilst it goes down what we have now is the wholesale gas price is really really erratic so it might drop significantly one week and then just skyrocket again the next and that's the real thing is that we have uncertainty at all times now and that's the big difference between say now and three years ago is that who knows what the wholesale gas is going to be wholesale gas price is going to be and because all everything else electricity price is tied to it even though renewables are really really cheap if you're selling at a market tied to wholesale gas prices and wholesale gas prices are just skyrocketing 
it makes everything really tough to plan ahead for, like really hard to plan with. So that's really bad for suppliers, isn't it? Because I think if we last talked about suppliers when bulb was collapsing, probably about a year ago. Yes. And so energy suppliers, essentially, from what I remember, we can always edit this out if make a complete pig's ear of it, but energy suppliers had to sort of buy their gas and, uh, and their, ener- <clears throat> their electricity in advance. Yes. So, so what used to be the model for most was when there was no price cap, basically you had a market in the UK where it won't be the exact figures, but you'll, you'll get the point. Like maybe 10% of people had really good fixed contracts and they'd just move every two years and they'd get another really good fixed contract. But you had a, maybe 70% of people who just didn't move. And what that meant was that companies could just charge whatever they want and then the people who were willing to move got a good deal and would basically get a price that was probably sold at a loss because you know you just had this majority of set of people who would just pay whatever they were told and for example we're in Birmingham and Empower took over that customer base in the Midlands uh, which is now part of Eon um, and then you know you just have millions of people who would just never change supplier and that was the way to print money for the companies but then in 2019 uh, when the energy price cap came in that profit disappeared overnight and what before was a license to print money now meant that you had loads of companies suddenly who had very, very nice profit margins suddenly became loss-making. And what happened last year was, because the price cap um, had doesn't is not elastic in the sense that it only changes every six months, mm-hmm. when the wholesale gas prices skyrocketed to levels that nobody thought were physically possible, those companies who were at inferior profit margin of 2.7%, that, that's the margin they're meant to have in their price cap, that disappeared and they were selling a lot of them well that everybody was selling gas electric at a loss and because um previously they may have hedged three years in advance and a lot of them wouldn't because they were buying it on the market of the week they just went under there was 30 that went bust last year because the market was broken the big boys could afford to hedge and could afford to plan in advance and so were better able to weather the storm but if you were um, one of the 29 that went bust you'll probably buy and get like ball on the market of the same week and hoping that you'll grow your customer base to a size where you could flog off to someone else but the whole, the whole market went bang and the likes of bulb which became nationalized last year basically became a state provider I think it cost a minimum of six billion pounds to the taxpayer, which obviously, <coughs> which is um, a terrible situation for, for everybody involved. He still had a CEO earning six figure salaries during the basically the nationalised period. Cause, Seriously, yeah, because though it was basically even though it was run by the government, everything just stayed the same. So rather than it being a business it became a state subsidized business so nothing changed in the sense that how it ran it's just we were footing the bill rather than it having to raise its own capital can't believe a government would just nationalize a business and then not change anything about the underlying structures i mean that's literally <laughs> so, never happened before yeah, yeah. So, so what the government the problem the government had is that bulb had millions of customers with everybody else who went bust, they could divide it. So, you know, British Gas might take 300,000 people here or Eon might take 300,000 people there. 
but the energy companies don't really want to do that because every single customer they take on is suddenly a loss maker for them. So they'll take them on to get them basically the business and at some point maybe they can make money out of them. Uh, but if it's 3 million customers, nobody will take it on as an individual risk until now where Octopus have stepped in and uh, the, the process is a bit murky. Um, three of the remaining big four or five have put a legal objection into it. So the, we think that Octopus have been paid by the government to take off basically bad debts because this bulb is okay. losing money. It's cost us £6 billion. We just want to get rid of it to stop those losses continuing. Do Octopus count as one of the big firms? Or is they, this like, they do now. They do. Uh, so is this yeah. a bit like a Newcastle... Sorry to use a football analogy, Steve. But is this a bit like then Newcastle United trying to use the money that's coming in from their new investors to t- break the top four? Yeah, I think that's, that's a reasonable analogy. So in the energy market now, you've got British Gas, who are the, one of the big established, um, and then Empower and E.ON merged practically. Ovo took on SSE's residential division. So in the last five years, we used to have the big six, but now you've got a, 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 like a merge of some of them, maybe it's a big four or five, and Octopus... Um, is now, well, it will have millions of bulb customers to go along with the millions of customers they have on their own. So um, I think they're now on par on size of Eon, which may be around six or seven million customers. I mean, Octopus would be part of a big eight, really. Nice. So the 2019 price cap, that was brought in by Theresa May, wasn't it? Do you remember Theresa May? Yeah. And that was in her period of trying to copy Ed Miliband's communism, wasn't it? And then Liz Truss, do you remember Liz Truss? So she also tried to bring in a price cap in her mini-budget. What is one of the reasons she's not Prime Minister any longer, isn't it? Yeah, because it was just too expensive. It was too expensive. So Jeremy Hunt in his mini-budget changed it slightly, didn't he? So it, it's now only happening till April. So this, there was a, I think there was a PMQ. We didn't talk about it, Steve, because I think everything happened so quickly. There was a PMQ's where Liz Truss was trying to say, Keir Starmer has no plan for working people, his plan's only for six months, and we have a plan for two years. And then, well, lo and behold, uh, once Truss Truss has gone, suddenly that's now just a six-month plan. Yeah. And and the weird thing from Liz Truss's plan was that the market does, well, nobody understands the actual how it works with the price cap. So the price cap isn't a cap on what you spend in your bills. It's a cap on the rate price. And this trust kept saying publicly that families won't pay more than £2,500 for their energy bills, which is completely wrong. The £2,500 figure is based on... Reduce. Yeah, yeah. Right, so it, it, so we're, we're drinking wine at the moment. Is it a bit like... We, if there was a rate of wine, and we said it was like it was a tenner a bottle of wine, and uh, the government set a cap, say, of seven fifty per bottle rather than ten, so you're pay you every time you drink wine, you are paying less for your wine, but there isn't a cap of say thirty quid. If I was to drink tonight eight bottles of wine, I'd then still have to pay. Yeah, my 60 quid for that wine. It's not a cap, it's just... A rate cap. Yeah, they, so the, the amount you pay for what you use isn't as much as it would have been. Yes, yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's capped till April, and it's I've still average use is two and a half grand, isn't it? 
Yeah, so, yeah. so that, that's what it is at the moment. So the, the right. rate cap, if you're the average user, will be 2500 And that's still... But if you live in a detached house and there's 20 of you, then that's going to be much, much higher. Yeah. If you're in a, a one-bedroom flat, it's probably going to be much lower. Yeah. But, but if you're my mum and have it on at 48 degrees at half seven in the morning, then, yeah, yeah. and have it on all day, that yeah. makes it. And, and £2,500, that's still £500 more than it was last year, isn't it? Which is £1,500 more than it was like 18 months ago. So the, the price cap at one point was like £900, then £1,200, and then, then there was a massive leap to about 1900 I think it was, and then it's gone to 2500 and then that's the government intervention. But... The markets didn't like that. The IMF said it was too much. The IMF said it should have been um, targeted to people that needed it rather than just a blanket uh, subsidy for people who don't need it. Um, and that's why Jamie Hunt has rolled it back. And it's up for negotiation again. So all the lobbyists from all other sides will go back and say, well, if you don't do something similar to this for the next six months afterwards, then you're going to have... Well, what we thought could be families who were on the struggling on the breadline, basically just not having the choice anymore, um, which is already sort of happening anyway. Yeah. But you know, make that times fifty, and then if the, nothing happens after April, the um, make that times a thousand. The only real saving grace is that from the April to October, people won't have to use. As much heating. gas because yeah. they won't be using the heating as much. I suppose we're in a different phase of the climate crisis, aren't we? Because then it'll be forty degrees in May, <laughs> yeah. so heating won't be a problem. Yeah, just yeah. our terrible homes will be because it'll <laughs> be forty degrees in the air. Yeah, so so the real so you know the usage of gas will decline, but if there's no support in October, then you, you know we, we're, we'll say we, we're going to the same questions that we were. Before Liz Truss's intervention, intervention. And, and even and his thing, if, if, even if the government does choose to, you know, intervene again in the market, and but it's much more targeted this time round, um, you're then in a bit of a trickier, like, economic situation, whereby the the people who would otherwise have been, technically speaking, can afford, quote unquote, the increased uh, cost of their energy bills, are no longer using that money to actually invest back into the wider economy, it's just going on their heating bill. So you then end up with a, uh, a a dip in demand overall as a result. So, But I suppose it's also, it's something that we talked a little bit about when we talked about the mini budget, which it's an episode that's come out for our champagnes, but may or may not have come out, depending on when this podcast comes out, because time is weird, listeners. Much like Liz Truss's energy policy, so <laughs> so I suppose with the target, so I suppose the problem with doing targeted stuff is there's just a massive admin faff and cost, isn't there, to try and work it out. I suppose then the other point is the easy ways of doing it. There's easy ways of doing it, and then there's politically expedient ways for the Tories to do it, and then there's the knock-on effects on everyone else. So you could beef up the winter fuel allowance and give money to lots of pensioners, uh, which I suppose is. Easy to target, but again, then might not hit a lot of the people you want to hit. If you were to give it to people, say, on universal credit and pensioners, again, you could do that. But then, as we've we've said, you've got household living standards are still going to drop by 7% this year. You need something for those households as well who might not be on benefits, but you've still got lots of people of, who are working, are in poverty, are seeing food banks. So I, it's... I, 
I mean, saying it's targeted is all good in theory, but yeah, I'm an old-fashioned Keynesian who quite like quite likes universalism and that sort of collective effort. It's just one of the arguments in favour of universalism is actually it's demeaning to target because then you end up with means testing. But also, it's an administrative nightmare, isn't it? Yeah, one hundred percent. And and again, this is just one of those things where prior to um, Liz Truss and Quasi Quarting's disastrous little mini budget. We might have been able to have gone away with a more broader universalist approach to future targeting. Now the markets are very much paying attention to every little detail about what the government is doing. And as a result of that, any it is possible that any attempt to try and do something a bit broader in terms of its support... Um, will kind of uh, enact the uh, the ire and wrath of the markets because it's just oh no this is the Tories doing what they were doing before they're they're having to do some stuff that's going to cost a load of uh, load in debt and they've got no plan to actually deal with it etc etc so really the Tory misha- mishandling of of the economy under trust uh, is kind of like the one of the root causes for why we're gonna have a, a much harder time dealing with this in the in, in the short term. We are gonna have uh, higher windfall taxes on big businesses, so there will be more revenue clawed from uh, the profits of oil and gas companies, which is politically easy an easy win. Um, I know before though. The Tories would say, oh, we'll stop investment, but there's been no evidence of that because they're still making lots of money. Uh, confusingly, though, uh, they've also, Jeremy also announced a higher uh, tax on profits of massive scale electricity providers, which includes uh, renewables. So it includes like massive wind farms, like on a, on a really, really big scale. But that's, that's a confusing, contradictory policy there. Why would you do that? Just claw or get whatever yeah, money it's, you it's, can. It's all the energy market, and it's yeah. easier for them to just kind of go. Well, we'll just hit all of it, rather than try and be like subtle or, or, or targeted in it, because it just brings in more money for them. I, I realize I'm going to completely <laughs> argue the opposite of what I just did two minutes ago, but this is surely one where actually a targeted approach to who you're going to tax. <laughs> so, from from the economic side, at the moment, large scale renewables are making a lot of lots of money. If you built a wind turbine five years ago, it's making you an absolute fortune because what it's been sold at, what you agreed with your tariffs, with your your feeding tariffs, your renewable heat incentives, and all these kind of things, what what you're what you're getting is tied to the price of wholesale gas. So you are making a massive margin at the moment. Yeah, fun- and, yeah. But fundamentally, it's still a sign of the broken market that we have, and so you still have large largely big energy companies who have who are the, pretty much the only ones who've really gone in on like any kind of like significant size of renewable projects then making buku money um and profit off of those yeah yeah because the, the cost of generate Strong. is good <laughs> the cost of generate is low and you're getting a price that is in relation to the wholesale gas prices like amazing for you like absolutely amazing yeah so if you built infrastructure large-scale solar farms you're doing very, 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 very well out of it at the moment. Yeah, and the argument just basically goes, well, if we're saying it's, for lack of a better term, immoral to generate the level of profits um, at the expense, effectively, of human misery um, for, 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 for people, um, that holds true for renewables anyway, even if they are technically not 
the root cause of the of the problem that we're addressing. I'm essentially assuming there is a pitch here for a very very niche time travel TV series in which we go back in time and plan a load of wind turbines and solar panels across the UK and watch the money roll in. Well, Maybe- we would need to repeal the ban on onshore wind for that. Oh, that's true. Wait, it's all right. Liz Truss and Boris Johnson are working on that as we speak. Which it is crazy, though, that it's really, really hard to build an onshore wind turbine when it is the cheapest electricity source, like, by, by a big distance. Is it just that Britain's a nation of nimbies? I hear the economist asking. Yes. Okay, we'll move on. <laughs> I suppose if we had budget for this time travel series and could recreate the Britain of, I don't know, the early to mid 2010s we could we could even try and build a nuclear power station couldn't we and try and stop Nick Clegg from saying no we won't need it in 10 years time yeah so as part of the budget size well C got approved and it's a so the as you just touched on the problem with nuclear is it takes a long time to get here it won't be operational for at least 10 years and as you pointed out with Nick Clegg had we approved it 10 years ago it would be part of our generation and it would be helping our moving away from Russian gas. Oh, well, that's slightly flippant because we don't really have that much Russian gas, but, you know, rather like it's on importing gas. Well, it's not just Nick Clegg, is it? Because I remember Tony... Do you remember Tony Blair, Steve? I do, yeah. Because he was also talking about trying to bring in nuclear power as well. I, I think it was about 2006, six seven, But again, that got blocked. I, I forget if that was a mixture of... It's very much just a, just one of those things where any any mention of the word nuclear scares a, a certain section of certainly the left, um, but like of the wider electorate as as a whole as well. I think um, and the importance of it as like is nuclear power ideal? No, is it a damn slight better than what we were what we've got currently with with you know with fossil fuels and things like that. Absolutely, it one hundred percent is, and and I think it's short termism and not fo- and it's almost like the engineer uh, like like, the, like a lot of governments have bought into like the engineers' fallacy and that oh yeah well the technology will get there for renewables and then when it does it will be absolutely fine yeah the technology will get there for a lot of renewables but the time frame for that the affordability of that is not necessarily going to be what you want it to be and so yeah actually now renewables working out cheaper than a lot of fossil fuels but and that would probably be be true regardless of whether or not we'd invested in nuclear earlier but we should have been investing in nuclear as a stopgap, even if it was a fifty-year stop stopgap, because it gets us off of coal and it just uh, makes our our the the control of our our own energy supply a hell of a lot easier to manage. Yeah, I, I can't see us reaching net zero without a sizable nuclear. Um, yeah. Because the problem is with nuclear: one, it's incredibly expensive, and two, you know, it takes a bloody long time to get there. The problems with waste aren't what they used to be. Obviously, it's still a problem, but it's not a problem of the scale it used to be. And it's a massive capital investment that a government won't see the won't see the results of, which is why it's so controversial. Mm-hmm. So, you 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 sign off a nuclear power plant now, and it might be a government free terms away that actually sees the benefits of that. So, you know, with our system, where it's very short term. It's very hard to approve those capital investments because you're not seeing the benefit of it. But yeah, we absolutely need more nuclear um, the invention of nuclear is uh, it's there once it's going it, it'll just keep going reliably and when you have your solar and your wind 
which are, which have to be very very important parts of the mix at times where you can't access them because they're not working because of the you know, times of year or still still yeah. still still nights in the middle of summer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's when nuclear has its place, and we have to upgrade the grids. So, if you want to put lots of solar panels on houses, our infrastructure to get that electricity from those panels to a centralized system doesn't really exist, and there's billions unspent on the grid itself and lots of problems but if you invest in them and then billions and billions you can overcome that but actually nuclear power is almost uniquely placed actually nuclear and i also want to say high speed two although high speed two is still trundling along just about but it's that horrible coalition of uh opposition from nimbys opposition from the right because it spends a lot but also opposition from a lot of environmental groups who, even the Green Party, I think Karen Lucas this year was saying, no, we don't need nuclear power because it's, you know, it's only a solution for 10 years time, not now. Mm-hmm. So it's almost, it's politically easy to drop. Uh, there's a, a really interesting book called The Blunders of Our Governments. I think it's Anthony King and Ivor Crew, and they talk about lots of blunders from sort of the poll tax onwards. And a lot of them are, done by that sort of short-term thinking you've both talked about and they're trying to think of how could you possibly try and try and encourage ministers to think long term which i think has only got worse since the book's gone out because as you might have noticed ministers there's been a, a lot of changeover of uk governments i think we're on our 83rd housing minister this week so i, I think one of the one of the solutions they put forward was could you have some sort of like award they don't quite phrase like this, but almost like a Nobel Prize for ministers where you can sort of reward them for this long-term thinking. But it all feels terribly idealistic. Yeah. HS2 is a really interesting one because it's had the worst marketing campaign ever. Like what it is, is a capacity upgrade. Yeah. So as an environmental campaigner, alongside an environmental campaigner, there's, there's few things where there's like punches thrown and two of them are nuclear, which I'm pro, and HS2, which I'm also pro. Um, and... Because uh, that HS2 is not understood well at all. People keep quoting it as like, why do I need to get from Birmingham to London 20 minutes quicker? And we don't. But what we do need to do is get capacity off the West Coast mainline and make it much easier for intercity trains like you know, your, yeah. your leads to your Manchester. And one of those the, journeys yeah. much, much easier. And one of the reasons the, uh, the route is, the HS2 is quicker is because there's just less traffic on those on those tracks compared to what they've got currently on the West Coast Main Line. So it's basically the same thing, but rather than call it, I, I don't know what you what, what you could call it, but like focus on that capacity planning issue and just saying this is how we improve all of your local train services. They went, oh no, it's high speed too. Train go vroom, yeah, <laughs> and, that, yeah. and that was the marketing policy. Well, it's the sort it. of Japanese bullet trains, isn't it? Yeah. Which seemed terribly futuristic thirty years ago. Yeah, like Tony Blair. <laughs> but I suppose, Chance, you are willing to take the tough decisions that this country needs. Absolutely. And so with with HS two, the really weird bit is like you can't upgrade like Leeds to Manchester without another high speed system, but you're gonna have to shut down the railway for four years to do it. Yeah. And that's obviously you you still want a railway between those two places. So you could improve local services just by improving local services, but that is a lot longer and a lot harder than just taking the pasty away and making a new line where you then have the Birmingham to London 
and you know it should go to the Eastern Lebanese scraps is an absolute travesty. It's just nonsense. Uh, yep. Yeah, and and so if you build all of those connections, it means that those local services aren't using the same tracks, and you can have um, the actual capacity to get people out of planes for domestic flights. And then it, the northern bit as well. As, uh, if we could finish off with energy. I've just got blackouts question mark written on my notes for this episode. <laughs> um, so uh, there isn't really a nice way of saying this, but essentially there have been uh, stories obviously briefed out by the government that the government has been planning for blackouts and reducing people's electricity usage if there's high demand in January, February. How likely are they to happen? It is unlikely, but it is a possibility. So what interestingly, what's happening now is there's a big drive on demand reduction. So unlike Germany, which has outwardly said, you need to use less energy now, and you know, you can't have a business with lights, neon lights on between certain hours, you know, you're being told as a citizen of journey to use less energy. In this country, you know, with, with our neoliberalism, we don't have that shared collective sense. So we have to we have to kind of sneak it in through the markets. So what we're doing in this country is we're saying to the energy companies, if you are willing to sign up as a user of energy and you're willing to use less between peak hours. So I can't remember what it is exactly, but say say between six and nine um, as the example. If you're willing to use less between those hours, you will then get a reduction on your energy bill. And so we, we, we're going on a quite timid demand reduction strategy, but it could have a big impact. So between the hours of six and nine, you know, people want to watch Coronation Street, they're putting their kettles on, they've got their TVs on. That load there is what could cause the blackouts. And we, we are trying through quite weird behavioural change. We just have to shut down Coronation Street to work out what the hell is going on. <laughs> yeah. But this is, this is but again, going back to Liz Truss, or um, disgraced former Prime Minister Liz Truss. But this is one of the things that was briefed down during her premiership, wasn't it? That Jacob Rees-Mogg, that well-known paternalistic socialist, had decided that actually we needed to have this government campaign to reduce energy usage and then this trust was opposed for ideological reasons because it's the nanny state obviously mm. to be fair I'm sure Jacob is more gets in favour of the nanny state <laughs> no I'm not going to go there <laughs> yeah so what, the key point behind all this is that we do have long term questions and whilst we are not likely to have blackouts we still need to fundamentally change our energy mix Britain was world leading in the sense that we barely have any coal anymore. In fact, you know, we have lots of days where there's no coal and, and that's how David Cameron made his greenest government ever slogan from. But what the next problem that we have is we now are very reliant on gas as the replacement to coal. So how do we move away from gas as being the, the big mix? And you can do it through renewables, you can do it through nuclear. You need, you need energy efficiency. So Jeremy Hunt mentioned it and said there was going to be more money for energy efficiency, but it has to be the, the biggest thing because it's the easiest thing to do in terms of not only energy reduction, but also health outcomes. So if, you know, there, there was a very, very public case recently of a mm. two-year-old child dying in a property because of mould, because yeah. it was badly ventilated and the, um, the conditions were, were inhumane. And, you know, there are lots of benefits of energy efficiency that we only really talk about kind of in a niche way. Because it's it's a capital expense that you don't really see the benefits in terms of like you know you want a wind turbine you see wind turbine yeah and, and you use your wind turbine but if you put insulation on your walls you know you, you could make better use of that money 
elsewhere, it, it feels like even yeah. that isn't the case. Well, it, it's one of those things where if I was the uh, the British government right now, I'd be like, we were talking about how do you target. Like, should you target? How do you target your, um, you know, your support for uh, the, uh, you know, people on the on the poor end of society who are going to struggle to pay bills this time next year in particular? Um, well, this is where you probably actually do start paying attention a little bit to the likes of Insulate Britain, and you just go, you know what? We're going to start that, and we're just going to start with those people because they're the people that can benefit it from the most. We will just build or find a way to get that in, in into the place. Yes, it's capital expenditure, but it's capital expenditure that's targeted that will help, and then it also gets the ball rolling in other areas as well. Because if you have, if you see an uptick, for instance, in businesses that are able to make more money off of that sort of thing, they will increase their advertising, which means more other other places from people who could afford it, like saying myself, might think about it a little bit more and then jump on it, and and then suddenly. It becomes a, a kind of like a just a you know a, like like a snowball that's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger until basically you've effect with with a relatively quote unquote small amount compared to what it might actually cost overall you've been able to get that ball rolling um, and have a massive impact not just in terms of CO two uh, reduction but people's bills uh, and just generally actually helping people out in a in a meaningful way. Yeah. Well, there's the, the the map, isn't there? Went viral on Twitter a few months ago, which is about how many degrees in temperature is lost in the house over the first two or three hours. And I think in a lot of European countries, it is one degree or less. And in Britain, it's three, four, or five. Yeah, it's like the second worst of the whole of Europe. And the, the big problem with energy efficiency, as it's seen at the moment, is that it's always just been targeted at the very poorest. So the very poorest. In fuel poverty, you can get maybe loft and cavity wall insulation for free because they're the easiest things to do. And we have, we've had several attempts at doing an able to pay market offer. So things like the Green Deal and the Green Homes Grants, and they were both utter disasters. Mm. But we need to make that more attractive. The reason why the Green Deal failed, or maybe six or seven years ago, maybe slightly more, was that it had an interest rate of 9%. <laughs> so so well, 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 if you're going to put external wall insulation, why not just get a bank loan? Yeah, it was much, yes. it was much better. Yeah, and, and, and um, the Green Homes Grant you know, from a couple of years ago, that failed because it was incredibly um, administratively cumbersome and it just wasn't well understood. And so what we have now, so as there's this... There's, there's, the disclaimer is, I work as a project manager in the energy efficiency industry, so I see this on a daily basis, is that we have, it's always short-term thinking, so we'll do a scheme and we'll insulate so many homes and then that will work eventually, and then the scheme disappears and there's a new scheme and it's all short-term thinking, it's all like Newcastle Council gets a bit of pot of funding here, so they'll do 50 homes, and then Devon Council over here will get some funding and they'll do 80 homes, and you know, Bristol Council over there will get a lot of funding because they'll do 4,000 homes and there's no joined up thinking. It's always competing council going for small parts of funding and it's nowhere near the scale that we need. And that's how this government does devolution and living up anyway, isn't it? Is It's all about just bidding for pots of money rather than trying to empower them to do it themselves and give them the funding that they need to do it properly. Yeah, and, and as Steve touched on as well, if you can get the supply chains going and you can get external people who have years of experience getting them installing it same with solar because at the moment what happens is you get the funding pot for this thing over here loads of people get trained up they deliver it for a year and it disappears so then they get trained up in something else uh, you know your external one insulator might be a solar panel insulator the next year 
and then they might become an airsource heat pump insulate uh, installer two years later because they may have a gas background with boilers and they just keep moving from thing to thing and without the certainty of having an industry that's stable yeah. it's very hard to scale up and you know we, yes. we need to insulate millions of homes and at the moment it's just very very hard to do that and scale is really the important thing there because like uh, I say, if you're kind of moving around between different like solutions and, and different sorts of projects for lack of a better term to describe it all like you could never have the the, the system set up where efficiencies of scale are able to brought in if you know for instance that you're able to keep this business and this sort of work going for five years say just as an example off the top of my head you will be more much more likely to invest in larger scale um, purchases of say wall insulation or, or certain types of insulation or whatever which means you probably then get a cheaper deal which then can then be, means you can lower your prices slightly which then encourages more people to buy and yet you still make more profit and, and so on and so forth so that that scale issue is is, is a massive massive um, problem that yeah. needs to be resolved but it basically just involves the government committing to it on the long term yeah. well medium term i guess rather than long yeah. but I see it on a daily basis. So the reason I keep mentioning external wall insulation is that one, it's very expensive. Two, it's very labour intensive. And three, it's very rare in terms of our general housing stock. But if you're going to insulate one house in a road because you know that got funding for it, but you're going to leave all the houses around it, that's a lot more expensive and has higher risks for failure than if you just insulate a whole road at once. At the moment, we don't have a mechanism where we can insulate a whole road at once unless it's a say a council owned road and they're all council houses or you know you have a block of flats that's all owned by a social housing provider yeah. and at the moment if you're in a house that's owned where 20% of the residents own their own house and then 20% are council 20% of mm. social housing it's very 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 hard to do the whole thing at once which is what you want to do to want to reduce the risk of the failure of the product and two just to make it more economically affordable because if you're insulating one house on its own with external wall insulation, you know, that could be £20,000 just for that one house. If you're doing 10 houses in a row, that may reduce to £12,000 per house. And, you know, you're saving your scaffolding costs, you're saving on your material costs, you're saving on your labour costs because you're not um, having to go from one house in one city to another house in another city. And if without, as Steve points out, that scale, these these pots of money don't go anywhere near as far as they could. If there are blackouts this winter, then listeners, you're going to want to have a stock of witty yet informative podcasts to listen to before the electricity comes back on. Where could listeners possibly go for such a feast of knowledge and entertainment, Steve? Well, they could head over to patreon.com slash not enough champagne where they could download uh, our entire back catalogue of, uh, you know, uh, unique podcasts that we put up there for our backers, stuff that was put out there early as well. There's probably a few things that you could print out and like store away in your cupboard for a, for a, for a, for a, for a blackout that happens during the day as well. Um, not, you won't be able to read it at night if it's printed out. Let's be real here. You'll be sat there like straining your eyes trying to read it whilst reading it with, uh, with the, the light on your phone. Um, until the battery on that dies, of course. Um, <laughs> So what I'm basically saying, listeners, is head over to patreon.com, throw us a few quid, it gets us the ability to produce more content, which will then keep you entertained whilst you're sat there in the dark with nothing else to do. I suggest you invest in some candles. (laughs) Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash not enough champagne. Our Twitter handle is at no champagne pod. James Cram designed our logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram. 
and Dave Depper composed our theme tune, Pookie Good Times. My Twitter handle is at Paperback Rioter. I'm at Acoustic Radical. At Shazwan13. Happy plotting. Mm-hmm.